Amen. It was great to hear you guys singing this morning. Thank you, Pastor Justin, for leading us. And as you can probably see, we've been having some technical difficulties this morning. But you know what that always tells me? Uh, it just tells me that I've got a message this morning that the enemy hates. Can I tell you, I, I, I love messages that Satan hates. <laughs> and I've got one this morning that I think he's really going to hate. So uh, I'm excited. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 24. Really, we're going to, this is a, this is going to be a little bit of a, a, a topical sermon, which um, I feel like I've been doing too much of those lately, but this one is vital uh, for us. I know it's very important for us to look at these things at times, uh, but next week we'll be back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we usually like to go line by line, verse by verse through the text. Uh, so this morning we'll be in Joshua uh, 24 verses 14 through 15 for our base text. But again, we're going to be looking at all of the Bible on what it has to say about family worship. Really, the biblical mandate for family worship. So let's start by reading this text at the end of the book of Joshua in chapter 24 verses 14 through 15. If you are willing and able, would you join me for the standing of reading God's word together? We do this to acknowledge that this very thing is God speaking to us. Did you know that? If you want God to speak to you, open your Bible and read. That's how he speaks to us. So verses 14 through 15 of Joshua 24 uh, this morning. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you this morning uh, that you've spoken to us through your word. And Lord, uh, we pray that we would, um, we would approach your throne of grace with humble hearts as we receive this this morning. Lord, there's going to be some difficult things that are said to us through your word. And yet, Father, it's often um, through those difficult truths that you grow us the most into the image of your son. That's what we pray. Lord, we pray that sinners would be saved this morning, that saints would be sanctified, and that you would receive all honor and glory as our King. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is also one of those sermons where I hope you have an outline. I hope you have a bulletin. If not, I hope you're taking notes. If not, you can find those notes online as well, but uh, I'd I love for you to engage in this uh, this morning a little bit, because we've got a lot to cover, as you see from your outline. So I'm going to jump right in. I, I want to start simply by explaining what it is I mean by family worship. What is family worship? There are um, there's certain ter Christian terminology that sometimes we need explained to us, particularly if we're new Christians or young Christians growing in our faith. So first of all, what is family worship? Here's what I mean by family worship. I mean this, a regular and planned time with and as a family in which there is the intake of God's truth, prayer before God's throne, and singing to God's glory. Let me say it again. A regular and planned time with and as a family in which there is the intake of God's truth, prayer before God's throne, and singing for to God's glory. 
I want to break down that definition for you a little bit and see how I came up with this. First of all, notice the who in the definition. It's the family, particularly with or as a family. By this, I mean a husband and wife, even if they have no children, or maybe they're empty nesters and they're in their later years in their marriage together once again. They are still worshiping God together. Or, of course, by family, I mean parents with children and the various stages of life with those children. So it is with a family, as a family, to worship together. Also notice, though, it's distinct from individual worship, meaning your quiet time, your personal devotion, but it's also distinct from corporate worship, which is what we're doing right here now in church. So, so that's the who. Now the what. You'll see three things I'm suggesting that family worship contains. First, the intake of God's truth, whether it be the reading of Scripture or some good Christian book or devotion that directs us in the Christian life. Second, prayer before God's throne. And third, singing to God's glory. That is essentially what family worship includes, what really worship includes. Then the third element is the when. That is regular and planned. Regular as opposed to irregular. Not once a week, not once a month, and something that's planned. It's something that we actually intend to do. That is my basic definition for family worship. A regular and planned time with and as a family in which there is the intake of God's truth, prayer before God's throne, and singing to God's glory. So, so let's go ahead and move on to the second question, which is where we'll spend most of our time, because this is an important one. Well, does the Bible command that? Does, does the Bible command family worship? What is the biblical warrant for our worship as a family? Well, I'm going to give you three arguments for the warrant of family worship to uh, display to you how this is seen all throughout the scriptures. First of all, the first explanation of how this is commanded in the scriptures is this. It's the biblical responsibilities of the head of the household. Those biblical responsibilities necessitate some kind of family worship. The biblical responsibilities of the head of the household necessitate some kind of family worship. And to begin, what I'm going to do is really try and demonstrate by building a very generic description of what it means to be the head of the household. The generic biblical responsibilities aimed at you men within those households. And there will be some application to others, but let me, let me show my cards very quickly. This morning, I'm going after the consciences of you men. Because I love you, and I love the Lord. So, so pay attention. Back in Genesis chapter 2, there are a couple of things that I believed are assumed. When, when God creates Adam, right, he creates Adam first, instructing Adam on what he's to do and what human beings, the rest of creation, are to do. He says you may eat of the fruit, you may tend to the garden, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God particularly and specifically instructs Adam. So it's somewhat of an assumption, but I think it's a generic assumption that when Eve is born, we don't have God directing his word particularly to her. 
We're not told anything in Genesis chapter 2 to 3 until the confrontation of her sin. We, we don't have God directly instructing Eve. And I don't think it necessarily means he didn't. But particularly and specifically, as it's displayed to us in the scriptures, he gives those commands to Adam. And I assert that Adam, as head, was responsible to communicate those requirements to Eve. See, it's interesting then, when he comes to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning, he's calling them out on their sin. He doesn't call out for both Adam and Eve, does he? Where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? He holds Adam responsible for what is taking place as the head of the household. We see this unfold more explicitly throughout the rest of the Bible. If you look at Genesis chapter 18, Notice this biblical description of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. God says this about Abraham. He says, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. Do you see that? One of the purposes for Abraham's salvation was that he was commanded to command his children. It goes on to say that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. So God says, one of the reasons I've known Abraham is that he may command his children and his household to teach them in justice and righteousness. That's a, that's a good description of the responsibility of the head of the household. Now, the way it applies to us as men is the same way. That's, that's one of the reasons that God has known us. It's one of the reasons that God has saved us. Why? So we command our children in our household. Now, that doesn't mean we hear the word command, and that doesn't mean we go around being a bossy man, barking out orders. It means that, rather, we are to instruct them in the ways of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. As we read in our text this morning from Joshua chapter 24, the close of the book of Joshua Here they are, they've cast out their enemies, and and there's still some disruption among the people that's going to lead us into the book of Judges. And at the end of Joshua chapter 24, we have him calling out to the people of Israel to make a decision of whom they are going to follow. He says in Joshua 24, 14 again, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. In case you missed it, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for you this day whom you will serve. Hear this. He doesn't want them to remain on the fence of indifference. He says, look, if you're going to serve the gods of the world, then go ahead and do it. Stop playing around with it. Go ahead and do it. But if the Lord is worthy, if the Lord is great, if the Lord has redeemed you, then serve the Lord. Make a decision. He says, were the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I love this. Notice Joshua's commitment here, regardless of what decision all of Israel makes. He says, for me and my house, my servants, my wife, my children, we will serve the Lord. And and the term serve here actually in the Hebrew has with it the idea of worship and service. 
that which is given to the Lord as a form of worship. See, Joshua doesn't even say, you know what? I can't do anything with my wife and children. They're going to make decisions for themselves. But just for me, personally, I'll serve the Lord. I don't worry about them. No. He has a commitment to his entire family. Regardless of what everybody else does in the culture, we, my family, we are going to serve the Lord. I believe that's not only worship, by the way, in a public corporate context, but as a family, we're going to worship the Lord because there's this, there's this really interesting terminology in the 118th Psalm that I, that I love. There's this passing statement in Psalm 118 about the reality of God's worship within the private dwellings of Israel. In Psalm 118.15, look at what it says. It says this, The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Now, picture what we're talking about here. At that time, people dwelt not in households that were stable or were made up of brick and mortar and mud, but, but they were living in tents set up around the tabernacle. You would walk among the families living in tents, and as you walk among the tents of the righteous, what do you hear coming out of those tents? The voice of rejoicing. In biblical terminology, it's actually singing. When a family was singing together, rejoicing and speaking God's truth, all you had to do was walk by their tents and you could hear it. That's what the psalmist says. All right, one last text for the general argument here of building the, the foundation for the biblical framework of, of the head of the household. It's found in 1 Timothy 5, and this is a heavy one. We're going to hone in on this argument a little bit more, but I want you to look at what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. Paul makes this statement to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says this, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Okay, so get this. The family has foremost responsibility. Then look what he says in that very same context in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Pay attention to this. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If a man does not provide for his household when he can and should, then he's worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. Now, if that's what this text tells us, deny the faith, worse than an unbeliever, now we argue from that general physical provision to the spiritual provision. Does Paul throughout Scripture exalt physical provision over spiritual provision? I mean, if this is care for the physical care of his family, how much more true is it for the spiritual care of his family? If a man will not provide the spiritual nurturing, the instruction, and the teaching to his household, I suggest he is bordering, if not completely engaged, in denying the faith and being worse than an unbeliever. Yes, I'm taking it that seriously. Because I believe the text is taking it that seriously. Now, now, somebody could perhaps punch some holes in that and say, well, listen, you're arguing by point of inference in 1 Timothy. You're arguing by way of example of, of Genesis, Joshua, and, and Psalm. It's a little shoddy of an argument there. And I, I confess it would be if that's all I had to stand on. Then it would be. 
But let's look at more explicitly in the text. Let's build our second argument now. The biblical responsibility of the husband to his wife necessitates some kind of family worship. The biblical responsibilities of the husband to his wife necessitates some kind of family worship. So now what we're going to do is we're going to move from the general argument to the more specific. First of all, notice with me over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul's giving direction on how to be filled with the Spirit and how this will affect the wife and the husband and the children even within a family. He starts in verses 22 and 23 by saying this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church. And get this, and he is the savior of the body. The direction to the wives at this point is to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he's the savior. So, so in a way, what does it mean to be the head? It means to be the savior. Now, as we look at this paradigm, we ask a couple questions, right? So first, how would Paul apply this? What's the application of this, the head and the body? Well, what does the head do? The head, in one real sense, instructs. That, that's where knowledge is held, right? It communicates to the rest of the body what it needs to do. If, if you have a head that's decapitated from the rest of the body, what happens to the body? It's dead, right? It communicates information and instructs the rest of the body. He's the savior of the body. So what does Christ do in regards to the church? He instructs it. He's the prophet of the church, the one who communicates the Father's will in the line of submission. Matthew chapter 28, remember the Great Commission. What does it say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Doing what? Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So what does the church do? What do the apostles and now pastors do? Their responsibility is to communicate the will of Christ to the church. And so, so there's the paradigm that Paul is laying out for us in the text. As Savior, what does he do? As Savior, the husband lays down his life continually in sacrifice for the good of his wife. It doesn't mean that I'm the boss and I push everybody around. It means I will teach you by way of sacrifice of myself. I am going to be the model and example of what I want you to be. Now notice the example going down to verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her, how? With the washing of water by the word. How? The word. Is he just barking out orders like he's some sort of king or boss of the household? Everybody's going to do what I say around here. No, no. He's taking the word of God and he's using it as an influence to teach his wife. That's what we find in this verse. So that she might be cleansed from her sin by the washing of the water of the word. Now tell me, husbands, how do you propose to do that without teaching your wives? Anybody think they can just magically do this through some sort of osmosis? 
well, I'm just going to study the Bible for myself. No, listen, I'm going to sanctify her by communicating that truth to her. That's the context that Paul says, submit yourself to his teaching. Verse 27, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It is a heart passion for the good of my wife, for her sanctification, for me to instruct her. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. See, this idea of nourishing has the idea of communicating and feeding truth to somebody. It's the idea of comforting. It includes physical comfort, but it's to comfort her by the word of God. So when she's hurting, when she's struggling, when she's doubting, when she's depressed, who is the first line of help that God intends? Not her girlfriends. It is the husband's responsibility primarily to help in that situation. And get this, guys. Listen to me. These are not suggestions for super spiritual men. These are commands to all men who claim themselves to be Christians and not take up this responsibility. It is denying the faith and being worse than an unbeliever. Right? But providing for his household, if not physically true. Guys, hear this. This whole idea that we have, uh, that the family's taken care of spiritually by my wife, I'm just the one that brings home the bacon, it's just not biblical in any way, shape, or form. And I, and I know our tendency is want to blame the destruction of the modern family on the culture or some sort of political party, but in my opinion, the destruction of the family unit based solely on the responsibility of professing Christian men who refuse to lead their families in the worship of King Jesus. That's where it comes from. Next, we move on to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being, get this, heirs together of the grace of life. Friends, we're citizens together. We are on the Christian path to go to heaven together, and the reality is, I've seen this often, it's a shame when a man is more interested in theological discussion with other men than discussing those things with his wife. 1 Peter 3, we are heirs together for the grace of life. I am a major instrument in her sanctification, and many women suffer because of the lack of headship of their husbands. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 35, it's, in that passage, it's one of those Ooh, it's a little culturally weird passages that speaks about women asking questions within the church. It's, it's not a patriarchal sexist statement, but it's given to put pressure on the husbands to be the helpers of their wives. He says there, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now, now it's, it's right for a woman to come to her pastor and say, you know, listen, pastor, I've, I've tried to implement that. But my husband will not teach me. I've, I've begged for us to read the scriptures together. Well, well, now, listen, it's time for the church to hold that man accountable for lacking what God has commanded him to do. And if necessary, even move towards church discipline. 
you say, that's real serious. Yes, because God takes it very seriously. Now, now listen, she's accountable. She's going to stand before the Lord being held responsible for her spiritual health. But that does not deny the reality that the husband is the head and what happens to the head affects the whole body. That is the imagery the Lord has chosen to speak to us men about the influence we should have in the lives of our wives. So the idea of head, he gives, he sanctifies, he he cleanses, he nourishes and cherishes, and he does so by the washing of the water of the word of God. That's the typical biblical responsibility of the husband to his wife. Third argument is this. We look now at the biblical responsibilities of the father to his children. That also necessitates some kind of family worship. The biblical responsibilities of the father to his children, it necessitates some kind of family worship. You say, well, we don't have family worship, so we don't have any children. Well, we're just now getting to children at point number three. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you don't have any children. You're still responsible to lead your wife. Let's look at the father's responsibility now toward his children. Deuteronomy chapter six, as Pastor Justin's already really read for us, after instructing Israel of his commandments, how they're to live, how they're to fear the Lord. Look what Moses says to the people of Israel. He says that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson. Again, let me, let me point out there's a particular male focus on this. Do you see that? He's addressing the males of Israel particular, not to the exclusion of the woman, but he's focusing on the responsibility of husbands to lead their household and pass it on to the generations that follow. You, your son, and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The word of God and the commandments of the Lord are purposed to saturate our entire lives. That's what the passage is teaching us. When you sit in your house, when you walk by, when you rise up, the word of God is to saturate, to marinate. There is a time of focused teaching. But it's not as if, okay, the devotion's over now. Let's live like the rest of the world. No, we continue to talk about this as we walk, as we rise up, as we lie down. And men, we are responsible for that kind of atmosphere in the home. It's not your wife's responsibility. It's not your children's responsibility or your pastor's or your church or your governor or your state. It's your responsibility. In Ephesians chapter 6, we actually have the New Testament equivalent Uh, to the instruction to the children given in Deuteronomy 6. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which if you have small children, that's usually the first verse you memorize together, which is the first commandment with a promise. And then notice again in verse 4, there's a male focus here. Fathers, this is not a generic term given for parents. This is the male heads of the household, it says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Raise them up. Nourish them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Where do we find the training and admonition of the Lord? Anybody have a good idea? I'll give you a hint. We're going to use the same means we saw in the previous chapter to sanctify and cleanse our wives. 
It's the word of God. I'm going to use the same means for the sanctification of my children. And so those are my three arguments for the biblical warrant of family worship. And I want you to notice something about them. These are not given to men with theology degrees. Because some of you are already saying, I'm so inadequate. Yeah, you're right. But join the party. So am I. These instructions were not written to men who were great, eloquent teachers. They were written to men in the church. Paul assumes that a Christian man with the Holy Spirit can read the word of God and that's sufficient enough to be able to teach his family. These men, contrary to every single one of you, by the way, did not even have a copy of the scriptures of their own. You know what they had to do? Get this, this is mind-blowing. They had to go to church and listen to the words of the apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers and fix their mind on it, so meaning they couldn't sleep during worship, couldn't be passive and inactive. They felt the pressure. I have to take these things and teach them to my family, even if my family's not here. In fact, George Payton, who was a missionary to the cannibals in the New Hebrides, he shares his testimony of his own father, and get this, in his entire life, he remembered two times that his father missed going to church. One was because, oddly enough, there was a plague going around through their village. Even then, he only missed one. The other time was there was such a horrid ice storm that he crawled his way to the meeting house through ice, got there, waited, and nobody else showed up. So he crawled his way back. Peyton speaks of his father who would go into the church, even when the family couldn't make it, if they were sick or so on, he would go to the church, and then he'd go home and get this, he'd re-preach that message to his family. He didn't say, well, if you got a couple of minutes, just jump on that website and listen to that message. It was a good one. He would sit with his own notes, and he would re-preach, sometimes even in an animated way. See, friends, my point here is is that these commands, they're not written to men with theology degrees or experts. We've got our own private copies of the Scripture. So so listen, I'm just going to confess. I'm, I'm trying to bind your conscience with the Word of God. Brothers, I love you. This is your responsibility before God. And to not do so is not merely an issue of weakness. It's an issue of sin. Some kind of family worship. Some kind of communication of the word of God in a regular and planned way. It is your divine responsibility. From my experience, the man who is neglecting his family in this way is neglecting the spiritual well-being of his family as a whole. Here's where it gets exceedingly difficult. Someone says, well, wait a minute. You're a pastor. You're the one that's supposed to be shepherding us. Look, I bring them to church as much as we can. I bring them to church and they hear the word of God. Can I tell you, if if we depend on church to just be this magic hour that we come to worship and we're transformed, we're actually thinking about sermons wrongly. You know that? Listen, we we want sermons to be life-transforming experiences, but they're only going to be such as we apply them and think about them and obey them throughout the rest of the week. You are in big trouble if you think that this is the hour where everything's going to change for you. This is where we get instructed in the word. And fathers, 
we particularly have the responsibility to carry through that word. If the pastor has preached the faithful, true word, we have to make sure by Tuesday we haven't forgotten all that God has spoken to us. That's what these men in the early church did. They didn't have Bibles they could take up and read every day. So so how am I going to instruct them? It's, It's going to be taking what I was taught, instructing them, and applying that all through this week. Let me ask you, brothers, those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks, have you talked to your family about giving? Well, you've already preached it. Why would I have to say anything? You got a wrong view of preaching, of your responsibility. Have you talked to them about the new covenant? Have you talked to them about Sammy and the shepherd? Listen, read your membership covenant. You covenant together to maintain family devotions. Someone may ask, well, what if I travel? I'm working all the time. Oh, okay, well, first you need to direct your wife. Give her some practical instruction. But that shouldn't be the norm. It should be the outlier. The question is, what happens when you're there? I know men who make phone calls to their wife when they're out of town. They call them and they just say, honey, how was your day? Let's talk about the word. Let's pray together as a family for our family. If, if there's something extraordinary, then let's plan, plan it in an extraordinary way. But I know this is my biblical responsibility and I'm going to do something. I know many of you wives probably ask this question. Well, what if my husband's not available? What if he will not step up to the plate? We're genuinely not available. And sisters, I point you to the example of Timothy's mother. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul mentions Timothy's mother and grandmother? He says this, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. How did that happen? You skip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and that from childhood, Paul writing to Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures. Who taught it to him? His mom and his grandmother. It's not usurping authority for a woman to say, look, if my husband won't step up, I care enough for the salvation of my children to do something. I'm not just going to read, I'm just going to open the Bible up and I'm just going to read it to him. I'll sit and pray with him. If he's not going to take up this mantle, then I'm going to follow the example of Timothy's grandmother and mother. So that someone might be able to say about my children and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's what I say to you, my sisters. Let's move on now to some practical instruction. All right, so uh, this is, is kind of the third question we're going to go over. How do I implement family worship? So, So, so far, I've sought to bind your conscience with the responsibility of some kind of regular instruction of your family. I want to to move now from the generic, the specific, to some practical suggestions. So so here's the beauty about this. If you have problems with what I'm going to say now, these are practical suggestions, and I don't bind your conscience with them. I, I can't. You don't obey these precisely or exactly. That's fine. You don't obey the previous instruction, you're in trouble with the Lord. So so how do we do this? Here are some suggestions, and we're just going to take the elements and expand on them, right? First of all, in regards to the Word. What are some practical instructions when it comes to leading my family in the Word of God? Well, one of the biggest mistakes men approach this with is to think they've got to preach a sermon. I've got to get up early. I've got to work. I'm busy. I barely have time for any devotional life of my own. I get home late. Things are tough. We eat dinner. I just don't have time to prepare for a sermon. 
good. I'm not asking you to do that. That's, that's not what God's asking you to do. Don't try and come up with brand new material. How about just sitting down and talking to them about the character of God? Talk to them about the incarnation. Talk to them about the basic things of the Christian life. How about saying, you know, children, we really need to obey and delight ourselves in the Lord. Let's take our sermon notes and, and talk through what Pastor Cody instructed us from the Word. Nothing new, nothing ingenious. Children, let's, let's talk about how we can apply this in our lives. Do you think you need a theology degree to answer some of those questions? Look for good devotional reading for children. I have a whole stack of books to give you, all different age levels. You can sit and read a portion with your family, discuss it, and pray. Don't try and come up with new material. Just read the Bible, sharing what you thought about your own personal devotion or some helpful book. Review the Sunday school notes or Sunday sermon notes. Use good videos. There's some really good stuff out here. And we, of all generations, are without excuse. We have access to more work of inspiration or more work of, of influence by the Spirit than, than anybody else in our time. Second, about prayer, okay? So those are some practical guide, tip, whatever you want to call them about the Word. What about prayer? I got this, okay? Let's, let's pray together as a family. But specifically, we pray for issues within the family. If there are financial issues within the family, pray about them together. If there are concerns for the spiritual or uh, well-being of the children, if there's a recognition that, that mom and dad have been tense, we've not been getting along, confess your sin to one another and to your children. Tell them that mom and dad need your prayers. Would you please pray for us? Let's pray together. Praying with a desire to glorify God in every aspect of life. Praying through the, the church directory. Remember, we've also covenanted that we will not neglect to pray for one another. Take out the church directory and say we're praying for the, the Zollers or the Hatchers or, or the Rodens or whoever, anything. You may say, well, I don't even know who those people are. Well, go to them and say, brother and sister, we were going to pray for you last night, and I got so convicted that I don't really know you at all. Can we, can we maybe have lunch together so the next time we pray for you, we would know something about you? Would that be okay? What do you think that would do in the life and dynamics of this church? Anything? I think it would. <laughs> Pray together as a family. Then third, sing. Some of you already are, uh oh, <laughs> listen, you haven't heard me sing. It'll do more harm to my children's sanctification if I sing to them than anything. Okay, you got an iPhone? Got access to YouTube? CD player? Let the Gettys lead you. <laughs> I don't know any songs. Okay, come ask me. I'll give you plenty. I'll even sing them for you, though you may not want that. Look, simple choruses. Right now our family's trying to memorize All I Have is Christ. We love that song. We're trying to memorize it. We sing the same hymn for a month every night. You can do something. Don't just stand back and look at the hurdles and say, I just could never do that. Have you tried? What have you tried? Yeah, okay, I tried, but it didn't work. Okay, come and ask for some counsel. Humble yourself. By, by way of a few miscellaneous applications, here's what we tend to do, right? If, if we preach a sermon on just, say, taking care of your body, which we don't really do because obviously your pastor doesn't lead you in that, but we say, that's it. We preached on this. I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. I'm going to work out for three hours, right? And then we can't walk the next day, get out of bed. You can't sustain that. I say this the same thing with, with personal and family devotions. Start out with something brief and just do it consistently. Here's, here's my practical advice to you. You ready for it? Five minutes. 
five minutes. You say, that's not very spiritual. It's more spiritual than zero minutes. We're going to do it five minutes. We're going to be brief, but we're going to be consistent. Next week, we're going to go to seven minutes. And before you know it, you're established and regular. Also, be aware of the ages of your children. Instruct them appropriately. As I, as I said, these are suggestions. You, you have objection, objections to these, that's no problem. That's not going to make me angry. There are things that I've found here that are helpful. But brothers, again, this does not negate your responsibility. If you won't do it this way, then tell me how you intend to do it. Because you're bound by the scriptures. Let that weigh in on your conscience. I'm not asking if you desire to do it someday or if you feel guilty for not doing it. I'm asking you pointedly, how do you intend this week to begin to implement what God wants you to do? And in my experience, I found three reasons you men are not doing something in this regard. We'll close with this. These are the most common objections to family worship, we'll call it. We'll end here. The first most common objection to family worship is ignorance. Look, there was a time I had no clue. I didn't know I was supposed to be doing this. That's okay. Up until now. Now that you know, you're required to obey God. To nourish and cherish, teach and instruct, to raise up your children and wife in ways of the Lord. That's okay. Nobody's angry with you. I want to be passionate, but, but there's no ignorance anymore. I can give more direction if it's needed. If you want some practical, here's the schedule of our life, come have dinner with us. We'll invite you to our family worship, give you some suggestions of how we can pull this off together. Sure. But ignorance is not going to move you if you don't do something in these last two categories. See, the second biggest common objection to family worship is just neglect. Neglect is born out of this just not being a priority in your life. It is, it's just not risen to the top to say, this is my duty before God. This is my duty that I'm obligated because I love Christ and my family. You start feeling the pressure and now the priority is rising. Guys, we've got to get our priorities in order. We're so quick to complain about the state of our generations that follow us, or the country in general. But, but part of the issue is we provide our family with the American dream and these white picket fences and these huge ginormous houses and all the toys and little league trophies they can get their hands on, all that stuff is going to be must or rust and moth is going to destroy. Those, those things don't last. But what we're doing here is, is sowing seeds for eternity. This is primary over everything else. So n- neglect is the second reason. This is what God tells me to do. To neglect what God tells you to do is serious. James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, what is it? To him, it's sin. The third reason is this. The third reason is complete disregard. And I love you, but for you I fear. Disregard. You, you say, I know it. I realize it. I'm convinced through the word by it but I'm not going to do anything about it. Let me read to you Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Husbands, men, fathers, hear me. 
you will reap from the relationship with your wife what you sow in this area. What's the definition of insanity? To think I keep doing the wrong things and it's just going to draw me closer to the Lord? You are sowing into the lives of your spirit. You're either sowing the flesh or the spirit. If you, if you come and say, my relationship with my wife is awful. My relationship with my children, we struggle. I just don't feel like I have their heart. You know the first question I'm going to ask you? What's your family worship like? How are you taking the word of God and opening it up to them daily? The way to change is to start sowing something different. Just little bitty seeds of obedience. My brothers, if if you will not lead your family in that way, the reality is, if you're convinced by the word and you're convinced you would just want to remain in your disobedience, the reality is, please just go ahead and say to me, I'm worse than an unbeliever. I realize I've denied the faith. Deal with me as an unconverted man. Pray for me that God would do a work in my heart and transform me. If this is something that's just not a commitment that you're seeking to apply in your life in some way, then respond appropriately. Confess your sin to God. Because the beauty of the gospel is with him is mercy. With him is forgiveness. With him where sin has abounded, grace much more abounds. Men, if you're here and you're failing in this area, you will find mercy at the cross. You will find forgiveness. But if you cover your sin, you will not prosper. Says Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. That's where you will find mercy, not in continued disobedience. Confess to your family, my dear wife, I've sinned against you again and again because I'm not leading you as God wants me to. My children, I've sinned against you and I humble myself before you. God's convicted me. I confess it to him and I confess it to you now. And guess what? He's forgiven me because he's paid for it on the cross. It's as if in his eyes I've never sinned because it's been wiped away. You have an opportunity right there to instruct them in the word with the faithfulness and goodness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess to them. I confess it to you. Let's make some plans this week to change it in our lives. What are you going to do today to change this? What are you going to do this week to change this? It may mean you need to turn off the TV. Don't tell me you don't have any time if you've seen and caught up with all the latest TV shows. It may mean you need to let that project you're working on in your shed wait another day. Or or go ahead and just say, I'm more concerned about those things than I am the spiritual well-being of my family. Just go ahead and say it. I love that stuff more than I do whether or not my child pursues Jesus. You may have to get off social media, adjust your sleep schedule so you're not tired, so you can give yourself to your family. Give yourself to them, denying your flesh so that you can be the leader that God needs you to be. He desires for you to be. Please, my brothers, come. If you have any questions, whatever it may be, I can help you in any way. That's my desire. I don't want to beat anybody up by having them leave here feel guilty. I really honestly believe that revival starts right here. 
with men saying, I've not led my family well. I repent. You want revival in this country? You want revival in this place? It will start when men start spiritually leading their families. Promise. The guilt you may feel I want removed, but I want it removed by the proper means of obedience to the Lord and resting in his grace. Any other kind of guilt will blow up on you. What are you going to do? This week, tonight, how are you going to lead your family? Praise God for his grace. Amen. Oh, this is heavy. It's been heavy on my heart all week. Didn't sleep a wink last night because I too struggle. Not perfect in this. I struggle to lead my family. But oh, how I know the God of grace. And oh, how I'm thankful how his word instructs me. How it puts to death sin in my life. It causes me by nothing more than his mercy to pursue holiness. Thank you, King Jesus, for your grace. And men, it's time. I love you. It's time. Don't you want to usher in revival in this place? It starts with us. Let's pray together. As you stand, as we close in prayer. Father, Please forgive us as, the, as heads of households, Lord, the ones who are to be the image and example of Christ in the lives of our wives and children. Please help us to take up our responsibility. Oh, Lord, when we look our children in the eyes, Father, help us to be concerned with their eternity. Lord, where it's necessary, help us to turn off the stuff that so easily besets us and draws us away. Just help us stop being like baby children taken up with toys and stuff that ultimately have no purpose or meaning. Help us to step up and be courageous men who will lead our families in love and in self-sacrifice. They're worth it, and Jesus, you're worth it. Please be merciful and give us help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.